Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Um, Tom, please can I just get some levels from you, mate? Yeah, if you just count to 10. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Is that right, Dan? Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Please tell me I'm not the only one hearing the, the beeping noise. <laughs> what, what is going on? This is my idea. Yeah, is there a garbage truck? Usually the bins get taken out just before we start recording, but today, obviously, they're getting <laughs> taken while we're recording. It's, yeah, 7.20 every... <laughs> not every day, every other day. Your bins are taken out every other day. It's America, baby. <laughs> I mean, no, no, I mean, listen, listen, mine, mine are here. I'm just surprised that in D.C. that's the schedule. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, well, what do you guys know about what we're doing this week? Um, because I, I, I've not been told very much. Yeah, I had a, I had a sort of mad afternoon uh, in preparation. Actually, before all the banks failed, which was a, a strange and different time. But uh, I don't have any idea what uh, either of you have been up to. <laughs> Dan, you stitched, you stitched us up this week. Do either of you uh, know how this is all going to work? Well, I'm here in the studio in London, and there is a laptop set up in front of the mic opposite me, so I have a suspicion we're expecting somebody else to join us. Hi, Tom. Sorry I'm a few minutes late. Ah, our uh, esteemed colleague Patrick Lane has just walked in. Hi, Patrick. Hi, Tom. Hi, Alice. Hi, Mike. Hi, Patrick. Morning. Hi, Patrick. Hi, both. Sorry to keep you waiting. Now, as you've gathered, the show's going to be a little bit different this week, and I'm in charge of it. You know a little bit of what's going on, but I don't think any of you really has the full picture, so I'll tell you. You've probably spotted at the top of The Economist website that a little letter A has appeared. And behind that A is months of work that's gone on behind the scenes here in London. And that's because we've rewritten our A to Z of economics, which is basically our dictionary of the most important terms in economics. It's been around for a long time, in fact, but we've overhauled it, we've freshened up the entries, and we've added some new ones too. It's not exactly like rewriting the Oxford English Dictionary, but it's the closest we're going to get, and it has been a lot of work. So to mark that, in this week's programme, we're diving in to the new A to Z I got Dan, our producer, to ask each of you to pick an entry from the A to Z, leave your desks and explore your chosen topic. And for the best story, one of you will win a special, highly coveted prize. You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. In London, I'm Patrick Lane, one of The Economist's senior editors. Also in London, I'm Tom Lee Devlin. In Washington, D.C., I'm Alice Forward. And in Singapore, I'm Mike Bird. And in today's show, a lesson in economics. First, we'll eavesdrop on one of Tom's conversations. Thanks for jumping on the phone. So we wanted to talk to you because you did something 
pretty weird a few years ago that made you kind of internet famous. Then we'll hear a postcard from Alice's US road trip. See for counter-revolution. The British are coming back, <laughs> baby. Turn left onto George Washington Memorial Parkway. And finally, Mike finds an excuse to play some music about his adopted home country. Tom, Mike, Alice, how does it feel to be in the guest seat for an episode? I quite like it as a naturally lazy man. Normally I have to do all sorts of things. I have to read the script and talk to the guests and all sorts of nonsense like that. And uh, this week I just had to turn up on time. Yeah, I'm not sure I agree with you there, Mike. I feel very exposed. It's much easier to ask questions than to answer them. So anyway, guys, you were set a challenge this week. Probably the hardest thing you've been asked to do on the podcast, if uh, Tom's reply is anything to go by. The A to Z of economics has hundreds of entries, all the way from absolute advantage to zero-sum game. They're all important concepts, and I thought that on Money Talks, we could add something to the written word. So your challenge was to take one of those topics and turn it into an engrossing podcast. First up, how did you find it? So I find that writing about business and finance isn't, let's say, a very outside job. It's not a job that often requires me to be outside of an air-conditioned office. So I actually found this interesting, enjoyable, but very, very different. Yes, it is always fun to go on a bit of an excursion. And in my case, it also involved some food, which is always good fun. I also, as has been teased, had to do a bit of driving, which is not my comparative advantage. <laughs> okay, let's hear what you came up with. Tom, you're in front of me, so let's hear yours first. You went with the division of labour. Why was that? Well, I thought, what better way to start us off than with the father of economics, Adam Smith, and what more iconic a Smithian concept than the division of labour. So that's what I went with. So before we hear where Tom's story took him, Mike, Alice, what are you expecting? A pin factory, I'm presuming. Uh, I don't actually know how pins are made or where they're made, but I'm presuming that's where this is going. Yes, given that we were sent a picture of you dressed up like an egg in a protective equipment, and you mentioned that you got to eat something, I'm going to guess some sort of food production factory. Okay, well, let's hear the tape and see if either of you is right. Andy, hello. How are you today? Hey, not too bad. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for jumping on the phone. So we wanted to talk to you because you did something pretty weird a few years ago that made you kind of internet famous. So <laughs> what was that? Uh, yeah, so I have a YouTube channel called How to Make Everything, and I kind of explore what if you had to do every step yourself to make a certain item. And the very first project I started that I got kind of famous for was I made a sandwich, and I did every single step myself, starting from growing my own vegetables, my own wheat. I learned how to milk a cow and how to turn that milk into cheese, butcher my own meat to make a chicken sandwich. And uh, how long did it take? So it took uh, about like a six-month period, and I had to like, carefully schedule all the, the growing schedules of everything. Six months, right. And, yeah. uh, and how much did it cost, if you don't mind me asking? So I totaled up all my hours and kind of factored in minimum wage and realized the sandwich basically cost at least $1,500 to make. $1,500 is pretty expensive for a sandwich. How was it? Worst part of it was it was okay. I was hoping it would be this amazing sandwich. <laughs> Sounds like a fascinating 
project, Andy. Thanks so much for chatting. Yeah, thank you. Adam Smith, the father of economics, used the example of a pin factory to make a simple but profound point. If one person were to make a pin all on their own, they'd be lucky to produce one a day. But when a group of workers each perform one stage of the process over and over again, they can produce thousands of pins a day per person. Andy's experiment in making a sandwich all on his own illustrates the same point. To see Smith's alternative in action, I travelled to a commercial estate on the outskirts of London where sandwiches are being made on an industrial scale. Hello? Yes, hi, it's Tom. Come in, come in, come on up. Thanks so much. Hi, I'm Dan Silverstone. I'm the co-founder and managing director of the Soho Sandwich Company. We currently make over 15 million sandwiches, rolls and salads a year. Going to head down to the high care production area. And here's a hairnet to start. Right, let's just grab some sanitizer. Final check in the mirror. Yep, PPE straight. Hairnets are on. We're good to go. Grab some sanitizer. So we're here in the room where the magic happens. It's a big kind of cavernous space, white walls. To be honest, it's a little bit chilly in here, but I suppose that makes sense given what we're doing. Uh, surrounded on the edges by crates and crates of product, and then kind of in the middle, we have two big assembly lines running with uh, multiple different stages along the way. Yeah, so on, on this line, it looks like we're making some lovely tuna sandwiches. I mean, it's clearly such a, a, a well-oiled machine you have here. At the station I'm looking at, there is a, a woman operating uh, one stand where they're uh, taking tuna out of a pre-mixed tray and applying it to the sandwiches. And it's so simple, it's, it's all kind of set up for her there and it's just the same movement over and over again. Yeah, absolutely. So she, this lady will do every other sandwich. She can't do them alone. So we have two people on this station. Um, they, they will deposit the tuna um, in an even amount, the same weight each time. And then further down the line, you'll have a team of two or three adding the cucumber. And again, it's about getting things in the right space. We've thought about where everybody needs to go along the line um, to enable us to hit the target, getting a, you know, say 50 sandwiches a minute through. It's a bit cold. Should we, should we go and get a cup of tea? Yes, let's do that. Oh, come on. Dan, thank you so much for taking the time to show us around the factory there. That was fascinating. So earlier I was speaking to a gent by the name of Andy George, who a few years ago decided to make a sandwich from scratch, and it cost him $1,500 to make a sandwich, which was a chicken, cheese, mayo, lettuce, tomato, onion, and pickle sandwich. How much would it cost you to make that, do you think? Well, wow, that sounds like a bit of a complex recipe he went for there, but um, we'd be a whole lot cheaper. I think the ingredients would be circa 70p, and then you've got to add labour, obviously, and your overheads and your distribution, and, and unfortunately a thin margin, but under two quid, easily. I mean, I don't know what Andy was doing, but <laughs> it sounds clearly bonkers, but yeah. All right, well, last question then, Dan, is can we try a sandwich? Absolutely. I've got a delicious cheese sandwich for you here. Oh, it looks good. Looks good. Well, you're not going to get any fresher than this. Mm, just straight off the factory. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Really nice seeded bread. Mm. Yeah, it's good. It's a great sandwich. Much cheaper, and by the sounds of it, a lot tastier too. That is the power of the division of labour in action. 
I think the first and most obvious thing to say is that, Tom, you've missed your calling as like a, a mukbang influencer, some sort of ASMR type food eater online. Yeah, wow. 50 sandwiches a minute sounds a bit like me left unattended in a prep. So yeah, really, really lovely way of displaying the concept. You know, there are those people who have real stress when they hear people eating. All of them have immediately fled the show. <laughs> that was a real... <laughs> That was a real bite there. It did sound fresh as, a, as described. No, this is a, a really lovely topic. It was one of the sort of things that most captivated me when I started learning about economics was just the power of division of labor and how much more productive we can be when we all work together. My sort of pet favorite example of this is the SAI pencil in which someone describes all of the many things that go into making a pencil and all of the many jobs that people need to do for that to build something so simple. And yeah, Great pick, minus the crunching. Excellent package, Tom. <laughs> you put that in a really nice way, Alice. People helping each other to do things. I think the point at which this interested me when I was learning about economics was more the idea of having an excuse to pay someone to do something <laughs> rather than doing it myself. <laughs> I thought it was really interesting too. I, I was kind of with Andy until until you mentioned the pickle, actually, Tom. I mean, pickle and mayo do, just do not belong between the same two slices of bread. But I think it's fascinating, really, really interesting way of portraying it. And Alice, yes, it's such a powerful idea. I mean, the thing that struck me is it's got this connection to other really powerful and fundamental ideas in economics. And one of them is the firm, because division of labor is really what goes hand in hand with the firm. And that's where so much economic activity takes place. We think of economic activity being mediated through markets, but so much of it isn't in markets at all, but inside the firm. And that's what division of labor enables. And the other thing, which is also really basic, is money. Because unless you've got money, you can't really have the division of labor because, you know, otherwise you'd have to make whole things and swap them with each other. And, you know, this means you can only do parts of things, be given money and trade money for the things you really want. So it, it's just so much at the core of everything. And it's one of the things that really first grabs you when you start studying economics. You mean if I went round to uh, Andy's sandwich shop and tried to barter him with an Economist article, it wouldn't go that well for me? <laughs> yeah, especially as you'd have to bring along the researchers and the fact checkers and you know divide up all the things that go in just to making your article, Alice. Team lunch, it sounds, but uh, <laughs> anyway, fairly big team lunch. Right. Should we move on to Alice's choice, which was mercantilism? So before we hear why, Tom, Mike, don't want to put you on the spot. No, and actually, I do want to put you on the spot. How do you understand mercantilism? Ah, oh, mercantilism. Well, I mean, Adam Smith talked a lot about mercantilism. He was not a big fan of it. Um, you know, that, that was kind of one of his big things. You know, all of these, all these European countries locked in a kind of zero-sum game, in his mind, was an incredibly inefficient way for the world to work. I mean, I have former professors angrily emailing me here and an attempt at a definition, but I've always taken it to be countries just prioritizing their own production, their own exports over the sort of benefits of trade, exactly what Tom is talking about, Adam Smith prioritizing. Yeah, that's pretty much how I understand it too, sort of exports good, imports bad. But Alice, what attracted you to it? Well, I uh, am based in Washington, D.C., and uh, the surrounding area is rich with history of angry Americans trying to overthrow their horrible mercantilist overlords. So uh, I figured I would lean into that and go exploring. So I took my producer, Stevie, out on a road trip. Okay, let's hear it. 
So we are currently on the George Washington Memorial Highway, which leads you from Washington DC to Mount Vernon. And George Washington lived for much of his life under British colonial rule, which used a certain kind of economic system called mercantilism, which is essentially the government gets to decide who does what, so who can export what, who has licenses to operate businesses. Uh, it sort of dished out monopoly power to its friends. And Washington exported a lot of tobacco to the UK under this system and uh, he didn't always like it and that seems to have been one of the reasons why you know he did that little old uh, revolution thing that uh, Americans are so keen on. So our uh, A to Z is uh, M for mercantilism and we're gonna go check out George Washington's tobacco farms. And also C for counter-revolution as the two Brits. C for counter-revolution. <laughs> the British are coming back <laughs> baby! Turn left onto George Washington Oh, so this is where we're meeting. This is where we're meeting Dean. <laughs> Hello. Hi. I can't believe it. We made it. The British are here. Yes. <laughs> You're ready to go. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> Dean Norton is the director of horticulture at the Mount Vernon estate. We jump in his car and he gives us a tour. Washington's true love was, was farming. He said that agriculture has ever been amongst the most favorite amusements of my life. And he really devoted his time here at Mount Vernon and even as president to the improvement of agricultural practices. As we drive through fields and past houses, Dean tells us about the farming exploits of America's uh, first president. Washington leased the property for a few years, 1754 to 1759, he's leasing it and then it became his through inheritance. And he just continued to buy land. So he ends up with 8,000 acres, maybe a little less. And that tries five farms. Oh, it's beautiful, like uh, we're on a sort of big, Hill overlooking the Potomac, yeah, lots of animals, sort of uh, pottering around, some geese, some sheep. I mean, they live here. They don't mind. George Washington, like pretty much everyone else in Virginia, started farming tobacco as his main cash crop. Selling tobacco to the British was supposedly how you could make your fortune. But as the quality of the tobacco dropped, the British put strict controls on the crop to try and improve it. So in 1640, they actually assigned an inspector. Um, and it had to be close to wherever the tobacco's coming into whatever warehouse before it gets shipped out. And they inspect it to make sure that it's quality. And if it's not, they, they could just set it on fire right there and say, this is no good, it's not going to go. Then they put a limitation on uh, the number of leaves per crop. They really got it down to where they're trying to make sure the quality was um, up to par. Another problem with farming tobacco was that its sale was based on a credit system, not on cash. If you could borrow on future crops and harvest. The problem with tobacco is it, it's a very complicated crop where disaster can occur. And so if you had one of those years where you had just borrowed a thousand pounds or whatever it was, well, you, you have no way to pay it back. Mm -hmm. So, and that's what was happening with Washington. And then you'd go, you'd have a certain amount of credit, you get to the UK, he wants to buy some fine things, right? Furniture or whatever it is. And he's using this credit that he thought he had the tobacco market fluctuated so much that by the time it got there, that credit that they said he had here wasn't the same anymore. It had already lowered. And so he's just he's just losing money. So how much in the sort of early years of, of Washington's life and sort of before the revolution, how much of what he had to grow at Mount Vernon was sort of dictated to him and how much freedom did he have to, to sort of plant whatever he wanted? Oh, he had all the freedom he wanted. It's just that if he's going to grow tobacco, he has to follow the rules of England. When they got all the restrictions and all, he had to follow those. And then and the credit system. <clears throat> he could have grown other things. But 
at that point, tobacco was still king. It was, it was what you grew. Washington eventually switched to growing wheat as his main cash crop. It didn't have all of the same restrictions as tobacco, and he could sell it to the West Indies for cash rather than for credit. The system Washington toiled under for much of his life was a mercantile one, an economic system in which the government exerts a high degree of control over a merchant's goods, dictating where they can be sold or their price. In Washington's case, Britain exerted a high degree of control over all trade in the colonies. The unfairness of this trade policy helped stir up revolt against British rule. Although anger about unfair taxation is the economic policy that set off America's revolution, when Thomas Jefferson penned the Declaration of Independence in 1776, he reeled off a list of 27 harms Britain had perpetrated upon the American colonists. Unfair taxation was only the 17th grievance listed. Just ahead of it, the complaint that Britain was cutting off our trade with all parts of the world. So this is turning into Money Talks, the 1776 edition, isn't it? We've had <laughs> the Day to the Wealth of the Nations and also, I, if my history is right, quite a big year for George Washington too. But Tom and Mike, what did you make of Alice's road trip? So I've actually been reading some stuff recently about the lack of cash in colonial Americas, the lack of money and and the sort of difficulties that people have with that. But I must admit that the American Revolution essentially being started by George Washington wanting to sell shoddy tobacco was, was <laughs> new to me. Um, I was not aware of, of this interpretation of American history. And it really, you know, I, I've always been a sympathizer. I've been a sort of, you know, Burkean on, on this sort of issue. But if he's just wanting to sell terrible cigarettes to the good people of Great Britain, then maybe I'll have to rethink. I don't know if this uh, revisionist history of why George Washington went to war is going to win us many fans. But yeah, I think it's an interesting time to be revisiting the topic of mercantilism, in part because some commentators, including our former editor over at Bloomberg, have argued that some of the new national champion style policies put in place by uh, the Biden administration and now the banking crisis also becoming a case of sort of national champions. They argue that we are, are returning to a, a more mercantile system and by all accounts, it wasn't a very good one. So uh, that's not something we should embrace. Well, I've had a bit of an advantage over you three in that I've heard all the packages before. And Alice has got me turning to my bookshelves and a couple of books that have been sitting there for years and I hadn't looked in them, to my shame, which talk about mercantilism very well. What I hadn't really grasped was that even among mercantilists, there were these views about how the state should behave. So the earliest ones were really concerned that if you imported goods you were basically giving away your gold and silver. And so in the beginning, it was a real worry about a drain of precious metals as currency. And then it became much more, we must promote exports and limit imports. And part of that in Britain, I guess, is this control of colonial trade, which is what Alice was talking about. And later on, it becomes, I think, much more connected with the power of the state, even the building of the state. But I, I had no idea that there were so many different takes on it. But the basic core of it does seem to be you know, the promotion of exports and the discouragement of imports. Yeah, I also had to go and brush up on a few of my economics history books before embarking upon my road trip. 
And when I started, I sort of thought that this would be a fun dive into an archaic and a long lost system. But I do think that some of the policies that nation states are are pursuing today are trying to sort of favour their exporters or or favour their domestic production and place sort of various restrictions on things that other people can do, do sort of hark back to this mercantile time. So uh, definitely worth diving back into uh, those ideas. Yeah. In my reading, I came across a quote from a book first written in 1938 by a historian of economic thought called Eric Roll, who was uh, quite a prominent British economist of the 20th century. And this seems so fresh, so I'll give it to you. And Roll said of, of mercantilist ideas, down to the present day, they all reappear from time to time in various guises, sometimes even to be welcomed as rediscovered ancient truths curiously apposite, it is thought, to modern conditions. Inflation Reduction Act, anybody? It's just proof that we're always right. We're always free traders and we're always right. I, I don't know what to say. 1843 to now. Never been wrong. After the break, we'll hear what Mike picked and where he went for it. But first, I want to tell you about an amazing offer from The Economist. We have some cracking stories this week, including more on the commercial rivalry between America and China, the latest on America's banks, and what we make of the turmoil in Israel. And you can read them and more for absolutely nothing by going to economist.com forward slash podcast offer for a free 30-day digital subscription. That's if you're not a subscriber already. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Before the break, we heard from Tom, who explained the division of labour through the medium of sandwiches, and Alice, who told us the story of George Washington through a mercantilist lens. Mike, that means it's your turn, and you chose the subject of land. Tom, Alice, what image does land conjure up for you? Well, I'm wondering, I mean, you live in Singapore, Mike, which is obviously an incredibly dense city with incredibly high housing prices, so I'm thinking something housing market related. I may have an unfair or even comparative advantage here in that I used to live in Singapore. (laughs) And I know that one of their many exploits is to dredge land up from the sea and add it on to Singapore because they're so short of it. So uh, I'm going to guess that it's something in that direction. But uh, in terms of what land conjures up for me, I mean, right now I'm thinking about George Washington's green and pleasant tobacco hills. Mike, have they rumbled you? I'm sad to say because of her incredibly cringy attempt to get comparative advantage in again that Alice is basically on the money. Uh, But yeah, let's, let's hear the actual package. Land is an unusual thing in economics. Unlike all the other building blocks of economic activity, like labor and capital, in most of the world, it's in almost completely fixed supply. That means it can't grow in response to rising prices. And that makes it all a bit of a zero-sum game. 
Every winner that benefits from rising land prices necessitates a loser having to pay more to buy or rent it. But some countries have worked extremely hard to find a way around that constraint. We've built a nation with our hands. Singapore, where I'm based, is one of the very rare parts of the world that has been able to reclaim significant amounts of land building out from the sea. To reclaim land, new material is needed. In Singapore, that's meant a mix of raising hills and moving earth and clay around the island and also importing sand from elsewhere in the region. I walked from our office, which is just about where the coastline actually stopped naturally, to Marina Bay. I'm here at the Gardens by the Bay, which is one of Singapore's biggest tourist attractions. Um, It's a lovely little spot of greenery right next to a major urban centre. It was strange to think that where I was standing would have been nothing but ocean a few decades ago. Marina Bay, the wider area in which the gardens are found and its surrounding areas, are a prime example of Singapore's ambitious land reclamation effort. Marina Bay Sands is now hundreds of shops, a world-famous hotel and a casino. The revenues of the whole complex ran to 682 million US dollars in the final quarter of last year. It was an enormous project and it started at a time when Singapore was undergoing a lot of change. Like Hong Kong, Singapore has too many people and too little space. So they're tearing down the old and building up the new. Tier upon tier, block after block of flats, and now the government's pride and joy. In the 1970s, Singapore had not long become independent, and the small size of the island was already a concern. Singapore was about 580 square kilometres or so back then, making it one of the smallest countries in the world. Prime Minister Lee Kuan Yew set out to reinvent it. To sit on a stool is more comfortable and stable than to sit on a shooting stick, right? Well, now we are on a shooting stick, but I intend to sit on that shooting stick and since that's all that I've got, 214 square miles, we'll jolly well make it a strong shooting stick and mine. And since then, the country has actually grown in size by more than 20%. Land reclamation projects have expanded ports and other areas of Singapore, including the airport. If all this sounds a bit unusual to you, it's because it is unusual. Singapore is incredibly rare in this regard. It manages to do what much of the rest of the world doesn't in creating more land. And without the ability to create it, land is a major economic issue. Some economists, like Hernando de Soto, a Peruvian development economist, believe that a lack of land titling, the ability to prove you own a certain patch of earth, explains why some countries develop and why others don't. If you can't prove it's yours, you can't borrow against it. And that's one of the best sources of capital for small businesses globally. How land is used for green space, for residential purposes, for business, whether it can be built on or not, is a huge issue across every part of the world. Falling home ownership rates among younger generations make it a particularly sensitive issue. Singapore is one part of the world where the constraints imposed by land have been loosened. 
Whether the country can continue doing so indefinitely is another question. Well, I I like that Alice went on a road trip into the countryside. I went out to an industrial estate at the outskirts of London, and Mike walked five minutes down the road for his recording. So love the commitment, Mike. Seemingly five minutes down the road to the casino, though. You know, how much, uh, how much did you put on <laughs> expenses, Mike? Jesus. I said at the beginning, I'm, I'm a lazy man at heart, and this seemed perfect. <laughs> uh, you know, it's a small country. I can't go all that far from the office anyway. So, you know, why bother going any further than that? I really enjoyed your choice of subject. Land doesn't sound like it's sort of the most complicated economic topic to dive into. But as you definitely explained, it is one of the few things that we find it very difficult to make anymore. And therefore, it has a sort of certain economic powers that other kinds of assets don't. Yeah, I found it really fascinating because land is kind of the forgotten factor of production, right? We think about labor a lot. We think about unemployment. We think about labor productivity. We think about human capital, we think about capital, we think about investment, and land is just sort of there, you know, until occasionally somebody mentions the Henry George theorem in an editorial meeting and everybody thinks, what's the Henry George theorem? What is the Henry George <laughs> theorem? Am I the one idiot that doesn't know what that is? It's a tax on the undeveloped value of land. So it's a way of taxing pure economic rent. Because usually when we think of land, we think of land being brought into production or land changing use. But the idea of actually creating more, that's something for most of the time you just don't think of. So I found it really interesting. Well, Lee Kuan Yew was a bit of a Georgist. There's some decent signs. I'm not sure he's an active follower, but he had some very similar ideas. Well, on that note, I suppose I'd better draw proceedings more or less to a close. I've been very impressed. Well done to all three of you. Really enjoyed all three tapes, even if Mike only did have to go down to the end of the street. But it's time to talk about prizes. And the prize I was talking about, the best one The Economist has to offer, it's an Easter egg, very topical, and I'm going to award it to... Tom. Yes! For two reasons. For two reasons. One is he actually did dress up as an egg for the purposes of our vocation. And the second is he's sitting right next to me in the office, which makes it very easy just to sort of hand it over and place it on the desk. But just to show that we're not the ruthless meritocracy that everybody out there thinks we are. (laughs) Alice, Mike, there will be chocolate waiting for you on your next visit to London. So well done, all of you. Well done. This is the uh, the happiest day in my life. I just like to uh, thank my mum. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> get off the stage. Get off. Get off. Rigged. Rigged, in my view. Absolutely. Uh, you know, he, he he dressed up, but I don't know whether you know how warm it is in the middle of the day at uh, Marina Bay Sands. It's not cold. I was outside. You know, it's it's not easy. It's not easy doing these things. And with that, I think it's time to proceed to your stacks of the week. So who wants to go first? I will jump in. My statistic of the week is actually nowhere near my region. It's negative 9.4%. And that is the year-on-year slump in Swedish retail sales. People talking a lot at the moment about soft landings and uh, no landings at all, you know, uh, the global economy just powering ahead. I thought this was really interesting. It's being a tribute to a weak krona, but also I think the Swedish housing market is a part of it. That Swedish house price is dropping now. They're very, very elevated, very, very high household debt, and that sort of thing tends to knock retail sales quite a lot. That's the worst retail sales figure that they have on record, and the records go back to 1992. My stat of the week is $40 million, which is the bribe that Sam Bankman-Fried allegedly paid 
to the Chinese government in order to get them to unfreeze a billion dollars worth of crypto in November 2021 when they were doing their sort of crackdown. So since the FTX news broke, I've sort of long been on the trail of where all these billions of dollars in crypto he was uh, supposed to have might have gone. And apparently a billion dollars worth of them were seized by the Chinese. And in order to try and get it back, he allegedly might have paid them this bribe. Well, I feel like that's just the story that keeps on giving SBF. I can't wait till we uh, get to trial. I'm sure there'll be much more juicy details to come out soon. So my stat of the week is $223 billion, which is the combined research and development spending last year of the big five tech giants, Apple, Alphabet, Amazon, Microsoft, and Meta. And that is more than double the amount that they spent in 2019. So despite all that pressure they're on to rein in costs, they're continuing to lavish out on R&D. And I suspect we're going to see even more heavy investment in the years ahead as the tech giants battle it out for dominance over the buzzy new area of generative AI. So they've just sacked everyone, but they haven't cut their R&D yet. Yeah, unless you have R&D in your job title, apparently. And I also brought a stat along. It's 4,000, and that's the number of additional megalitres a day of water supply capacity that England and Wales will need by the middle of the century if we're going to be resilient to extreme drought. And remember, last summer here was very hot and very dry. To put it in more technical terms, that's the equivalent of 1,600 Olympic swimming pools. Uh, Now, to get there, we need to cut demand, on which progress isn't very good. We need to plug leaks, on which we could do a lot better. And we need to build more reservoirs. And that is only just starting. We haven't had a new one in this country since 1991. And the first of this batch won't be on stream until 2029. See, Patrick, you are just a money talks natural, bringing in a sort of horrifying statistic about how we're all going to bake alive (laughs) because of our inability to build any infrastructure (laughs) under the ravages of climate change. And with that, Tom, Alice and Mike, thank you very much for having me letting me invade the show this week a huge thank you to stevie hertz and ali jean baptiste our producers in the us and singapore and thank you for listening to money talks don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts and you can always write to us at podcasts at economist.com today's show was produced by dan asher and marie keyworth our sound engineer is ting lee lim and the executive producer is marguerite howe i'm patrick lane I'm Alice Forward. I'm Tom Lee Devlin. I'm Mike Bird. And this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.